Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. My name is Father Peter Mosses. Oh, you were low. Low in How low voice. can you go? What if people listen to that on, like, the half-speed setting? I wonder what Whoa. that would sound like. I'm Father Peter. <laughs> you good? Yeah. Is that on your system? <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. It is the 25th Sunday of Ordinary Time. So what, what happens is that uh, Scott is trying to rush me because I have to say Mass in... One hour exactly. Okay, can I let them in on what happens when we're in this situation? This yes. is our pattern. Okay. You get super rushed because you've got to get someplace profoundly important, usually to say mass. Yes. I try to hurry the podcast along, and those are the times that you always make a point of derailing me <laughs> <laughs> the most. The most. Literally, I Because you s- enjoy it so much when you can tell I'm trying to hurry yeah. <laughs> There's something about it's so much fun to you. Yeah, I don't know why. Which I enjoy delights it so me much. about you because you're not considering fully the consequences. <laughs> but you're so you're so there's so much joy in the moment. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's it's weirdly beautiful. There. So it is twenty fifth Sunday in ordinary time, which is also the the feast day of Saint Thomas of Villanova. Which I'm like, did he really? go to the University of Villanova? Or it's maybe it's named after him. But I made a prediction today to the focus team, and I want to see if it plays out. Okay. So, do you want to start us? <laughs> yeah. Our, <laughs> our first reading is Amos 8, 4 to 7. Anything else to add? Nothing? Okay. Our response royal psalm is Psalm 113, verses 1 through 2, 4 through 6, 7 through 8, and the response coming from 1A and 7B. Smush together. Dude, I just want a cookie now from Famous Amos. Dude, come ah, on. Thank you. I told <laughs> I just, the focus team there's two things you can set your watch on. If Amos ever shows up, <laughs> you will make a Famous Amos cookie joke. And if Exodus ever shows up, you will sing Bob Marley's Exodus. Movement. Dodge um, people. Every time. You set Dude, your watch by it. Man, now I'm never going to do it again. <laughs> there's that you no, would bring up famous Amos. Cookies. There's no possible way that I'm ever going to do either of one of those things now. Now that nope. you bet on it, no, nope, because you will forget until the next time. And, <laughs> and this is going to this isn't going to happen for three more years. We're good. I think we're totally cool. And you are not going to be able to help yourself with the Exodus. No, I know you well enough. No, it, just, the, it, it oozes up within I you. I know, but and the, that's good. Praise God for that. I scuba dive now, so I'm cooler than than being predictable. I scuba dive now, so I'm cooler. <laughs> <laughs> what a strange point of reference. Uh, Our second reading is coming from second from First Timothy, it's chapter <laughs> two, verses one through eight. And then our Alleluia is from Second <laughs> Corinthians eight nine. <laughs> That's true. And our gospel is from Luke sixteen one through thirteen. One of the most strange and avoided parables <laughs> in the gospel. Yeah, the for great and weird reasons. The great and weird parable of the dishonest uh, steward father sean uh, oh he came to me and and uh i was uh i was a uh, power wa- basically i had this weird power washing session father Tell sean came father up sean. to me while i was power washing and told me that our podcast three years ago was really good so i was tempted to listen to it no but you didn't did you no okay no man this oh, dude, sh- we have made an agreement with one another well now i'm nervous that we're not going to be able to i know me too to hang. this oh, is no. this is like um if you any of you are ever wondering what an experience of a priest is like you give your first homily for the weekend so it Maybe at the, it's the seven thirty a.m. Maybe the five p.m. on Saturday night, and like if it goes well, the other masses are not going to be as good. 
Oh yeah, because you're totally. always trying to get back to that first to that one that gri- you did. Yep, totally, and totally. It, and like the spirit was working. Yeah, and then but then if the first one goes badly, the last one will be awesome. Th- then it just gets better because you're yeah. like, I have got to improve this, and totally. you're just just working. So literally, it, the only way to avoid that is if you write it down. And if you write it down, it's no good. Just fathers, don't write it down. Just, really? Are yeah, you just, sure you're going to yeah, hang let, with Let that? the Holy Spirit don't know move you. Prepare yourself. Get your points. Don't write it down. I don't know if I'm going to concede that point. <laughs> <laughs> that stresses me out. Does it stress bit. you out? Yes. As someone who writes things down, yeah. it stresses me out a little bit. Just to, I've always, Depending well, I was, on your temperament, write it down. I'm okay? not a homilist. I'm not a homilist. Let's just be very clear about that, and I have no intention of being one. Okay. But as a teacher, I've always been taught one principle that I was taught is that always know the strong point you're going to start on and have a strong point to end on. Right. And know exactly where you're starting and where you're going. You don't have to write anything in the middle. You have to, you know, know, have an idea. But I always write down the beginning and I write down the end. Mm. Because I want to know where to land it. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. I'm terrible at landing things. I I can be, for me, a homily, I say, what's your one point you're trying to say? Yep. And say it. Okay. So what is, okay. That being said, I do, and I didn't listen to our podcast from three years ago, but I do think these are some of the hardest readings <laughs> that I we have. I was preparing this morning, and I was like, oh, man. Like, he got called. He was a dresser of sycamores. He uh, ended up uh, preaching to the northern kingdom. It's the ten and the two. So you have the ten northern tribes, two southern tribes. And he is preaching against a temple in what? Where is he? Bethel. Bethel. So, so um yeah, what we need to kind of keep in mind, so he's writing around the 800s, I believe, which is an important time frame. So there was- B.C., like said, not A.D. B.C., and remember, time <laughs> always moves backwards in B.C. It's right? like back to the future. Except it's not. It's like no, it sand sure. through the what? hourglass. So are the days of our lives. Come on, name the movie. That's Days of Our Lives, the soap opera. no. Yes, it is. No. And if you have a movie, it's quoting Days of Our Lives. Right, yes. What's the... I mean... Bill and Ted's can't... Excellent Adventure when they steal Socrates, dude. Come on. <laughs> Come on, he's there. And they... I gave you the original quote. I know, but I, am, I gave you... You the... just gave me a redaction. You're right, I dude. gave you the original source material. My goodness. Dude, you know what? I oh. did not mean to betray your resource <laughs> mont, okay? Thank you. Okay, mea okay. culpa. 800s. 800s, is what BC. Is what we're talking here. Sands of the hourglass. Uh, sands of the hourglass. Um, so, yeah, you, you mentioned the civil war with Israel. Israel has split. So the 10 northern tribes have founded their own kingdom. And the reason Bethel is important is that they didn't just found their own kingdom with their own kings, but they established a sort of pseudo-liturgy. They built their own temples. There is only one temple. The temple is the place where God's presence dwells in Israel. And they built pseudo-temples. And in Bethel was one of the places where the where the temple where their their temple was built as this place of false worship, of idolatry, of all these terrible things. Um, so Bethel is the spot. 800s are important because it's in 722. So about a little less than 100 years later, the northern kingdom will be obliterated by the Assyrians, right? Yeah, that, and th- that's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. But here, where Amos is, is prophesying, um, first of all, Assyria is not yet a superpower. They're going to be soon, but they're not quite on the map yet. Um, they're going to destroy Israel with one gen- within one generation. But right now, when Amos is, is prophesying, this is like the height of the northern kingdom. Yeah. Economically, you know, their prosperity, they're thriving. Everything is awesome. 
And it's funny that you have this prophet who shows up with this really profound doom and gloom at the height of when everything is going great. Right. Because you think of the prophets sometimes, especially down in the south. And it's like, look at what's happening. Like, you got to turn back. There's trouble on the horizon. Things are looking bad. Right. But this is a prophet who shows up at the height of everything being great. And he actually is coming with the simplest Hebrew in the entirety of the scriptures. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So what ha- what happens is that he's like a he's like stuck a feather in his hat and called it macaroni. He is a dude from the country who is coming into the most erudite, everything's good. Yes. And he's like, you should repent. Well, yeah, because they're educated, they're prosperous, they're wealthy. Right. They are, they, do you know where their wealth is coming from? I don't, I don't mean, from? for our Southern listeners, I'm sorry, I did not mean to be triggering or offensive. I just am like. At least Josh Dime won't be mad about a Wichita reference anymore. <laughs> <laughs> At least we've moved on yeah. our offenses to the South. Um but part of what's making them so rich is the idolatry the idolatry of golden calves. There's right. a calf cult <laughs> that's actually happening in Bethel at the time, which there's big business to build these idols. People are getting rich. They're worshiping. I mean, think about this for a second. They're worshiping golden calves, and the golden calf cult is actually making them incredibly wealthy and powerful. And you're like, oh, man, that's really bad. And so, yeah, this outsider, this person from the country comes in to the powerful, elite, wealthy, educated. And he's like, you guys are are fascinating. It's believed, some people believe Amos to be the first of the 12 minor prophets. So the prophets are kind of organized by major and minor, right? Major simply meaning they're longer books. So like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. They're major prophets because they're bigger and longer. And you can get a major in them, where the other ones you actually have to do a lot of a like corporal? groundwork. You have to like mine. Oh, a major. Them. I was thinking like military ranks. No, you yeah. just get a corporal in. <laughs> um, but the, the Amos is in what's called the Book of the Twelve, the Twelve Smaller Prophets. And it's believed that he's the first, but in the canon, it comes after Joel, which just there's something interesting about that, who's prophesying to the same region. But Joel gives the very familiar schema of like, okay, if you don't turn back, if you don't repent, punishment will come, right? That's kind of how the prophets tend to operate. Amos does not operate that way. It's not an if then. It's simply then. It's saying, yeah, you guys are done. This is so bad. Things are so horrible and idolatrous and and evil and sinful, it's done and God's punishment is coming. And really the way the book is structured is this sort of litany of going through all these oracles against these sinful pagan nations, seven of them. And then the capstone is Israel herself. And he puts them in the category of all these sinful nations. He says, yeah, your punishment is coming. So in chapter eight, by the time we get to our reading that we have this Sunday, it's like, this is it. This is kind of the nail in the coffin. Hear this. This is the end. It's over for you guys. Which, again, he's saying that at the height of prosperity. Like, what do you mean it's over? We're doing great. We're doing fine. Everything is super. How can you possibly think that things are going to come crumbling down around us? Everything's great. And he's like, yeah, no, they're coming down. Mm. And specifically what he turns to in chapter 8 as far as the reasoning that they're going down, basically, is this. He says, hear this. All you who trample upon the needy and destroy the poor of the land, when will the new moon be over, you ask, that we may again sell our grain on the Sabbath that we may display the wheat? It's like we don't want to take a day of rest. Oh, day of rest, day of worship. we got to set these things aside. I mean, it's like 
I mean, it's, it's very familiar to our culture, right? I don't have time for Sunday. I don't have time to kind of take a break and go to, I don't have time to go to mass. There's more business. I got to buy, sell, you know, sell, sell high, buy high, sell low. You know, you can kind of make a caricature of it, but <laughs> that's reversed. Strike whatever, that. Strike that. This strike is why I'm a, theolo- I'm a theologian, not an economist. <laughs> I can economist. Tell. <laughs> <laughs> that's why. That's why I'm your boss. Thanks, okay? man. We yeah. will diminish the FF, Add to the shekel. We'll fix our scales for cheating. We're gonna cheat people. We'll buy the lowly for silver. We'll sell the poor for a pair of sandals. We'll refuse the wheat that we sell. Literally, he's saying, "Look at you guys and how you got your wealth." Hold on. Because hold, hold on. Look at this. Well, we will buy the lowly for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. That's actually like sweatshop for Nike. Remember that? It's totally, it totally is. Yeah, it's like I'm sure they still exist. In, oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, like that's that's actually what we're doing. But but this is the thing because what Amos is not doing is simply saying you're worshiping false gods, therefore you're bad. It's a it's a it's almost a cause and effect. Why are they worshiping false gods? Well. It's a, it's it's Jesus talks about you know who who is faithful in small things will be faithful in great things and if you're unfaithful in small things you'll be unfaithful in great things and there's been this progression of greediness and selfishness right. which leads to a trampling down of the poor which leads to a dehumanization of the culture which means to a using of people and buying selling human beings which leads to the idolatry that makes something else a god which leads ultimately to making ourselves into gods right it's not like oh you've committed this sin therefore everything's bad it's saying no look at what's happened you got a little greedy on a little bit of wealth you got some success and that led to more and that led to trampling down people and then you start using each other and it's not just like oh there's this thing you know you've committed that sin of idolatry therefore this it's like no all of those things are a big picture and it's because it's the fruit of what you've done and the fruit of what you've done is a lack of respect for human dignity and that's really what it's getting at. It's not right. God saying, okay, you, you made this slip, therefore I'm going to destroy you. It's saying, no, how can a good God who's loving and merciful allow his people to destroy one another and let that go on indefinitely? Right. Because I got to put a stop to it. Yes. And Amos is the definitive, a stop is coming. Get ready. And it's uh, it's funny. The last thing I want to say about that is there's a, there's a quote from, oh, I dropped all my sheets. <laughs> There's a quote from this rabbi. No, it's in the Babylonian Talmud. Sorry. See, this is why that maybe you're proving I'm proving your point of not writing things down because <laughs> my sheets are falling everywhere. But it's a quote from the Babylonian Talmud. Uh, it's Rabbi Simi, uh, Rabbi Simili, who says the 613 commandments given to Moses. So remember the the Mosaic law, Deuteronomy, has 613 laws. So the 613 laws given to Moses were reduced by David to 11, which is a reference to Psalm 15, which says. Um, um, but to do justice and to love mercy and to um, walk humbly with your God. This list of like, could do these 11 things. And then Isaiah reduced them to six. It's Isaiah 33. It talks about how to live. Micah reduced them to three. Isaiah further to two. And finally, Amos reduced all of these 613 commandments to one, which is a quote from Amos chapter five, verse four. It says, seek me and live. Because what Amos is saying is, It's over. This is the last step. I'm not going to restore you as a nation. You are not going to be a prosperous kingdom who has rejected me and founded idolatrous temples. But if you seek after me, you will live. Follow. It sounds like a, 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 a lame science fiction movie, doesn't it? Follow me and live. You want to live. But it's like in the midst of like the darkness and all this stuff. Right. Seek me if you want to live. Follow me. 
come now. This is your last chance kind of a thing. Mm. It's profound. Yeah. Um, how it relates to the rest, we will see. Praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. And that there's, there's a bit of an obvious connection here, right? What is the fruit of what? And it's hard to say what's the cause and what's the effect. Did the idolatry lead to an abuse of the poor? Did the abuse of the poor lead to idolatry? I don't know, but it's, it's well, a showing that human beings are complicated and choices lead to other choices. And well, things this, we do affect other things. Well, this is the thing is, is the central idea in my life is the idea of reverence as mm. defined by Dietrich von Hildebrand. Mm is that that if you revere something if you if you have reverence then you allow being the space to reveal itself okay. so being i take the kind of the from the fourfold harmonies you have yeah. god yeah. as in being you know self neighbor and creation yeah so what happens is irreverence as soon as you become irreverent you start to write your own ideas in a prideful way upon those levels of being so here we are, the golden calf. Okay, I think God is what I want God to be. Now, right. von Hildebrand, what, he's, what he proposes is he says two things. He says that the reason why we're irreverent is by for pride and concupiscence. Okay. Either we're attached to our own excellence or we want to actually use being itself for our own con- sinful ends. So, okay. so what happens is that I can write, I can see on myself what I want to be there. I can see on another what I want to be there. Sure, totally. Either because sure. I think that I'm so good yeah. or I actually am trying to get something out of it. So, yeah. so when we say, praise the Lord who lifts up the poor, when we look at the poor, what do we see? This is the hard part is that it, it, do I see the dignity that we're actually talking oh. about in the first reading? Right. Do I actually read right. upon them the dignity that is theirs that is actually meant to be lifted up? Right. Like to be raised out of the dust and to be able to say like, no, you are in, Im- in the image and likeness of God. And that's actually where Christ comes in in the midst of all of this and says, praise the Lord who lifts up the poor. So much so that he identifies himself in the poor. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining, you know, you got to imagine, maybe I'm thinking like a father, but I imagine like one of my kids being picked on or something. Right. And God, I mean, so you, you think of God as the angry, wrathful, punishing God, but that's such the wrong way to view him. View him as a father. And what does a father do when he hears his kids are getting picked on? You stand up for them. Like, how right. dare you? Right. And not only the kids are being picked on, but this is my beloved I've associated my, myself maybe even most closely with this one. It's not just, oh, you've done this thing wrong. You've broken the law. You know, I'll put an X by your name because you've, you've messed up. No, a father who sees his kids getting mocked or slighted in some way or a par- any parent, for a father, mother, it, 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 it fuels this anger within them of like, how dare you treat my child like that? How dare you trample my poor? And then you look at something like Amos, and you're like, this isn't just mean, angry, wrathful, law-giving God. It's God who's a dad. He's right. like, how dare you Dude, I remember pick I, on my kids? I lied to my dad about like Uh-oh. a teacher being mean to me. And my dad went, dad, like what you're I'm talking all about. All dad, full-on dad. He went full dad. <laughs> he, he, me dad, you dad, be dad. And he went off, and he was about to, like, and, and actually he called up my teacher and chewed her out for a lie that I told him about how my teacher was treating me bad. Oh, no. Uh, you want to know? I mean, this is the thing <laughs> is the complexity of that situation mm. as a child of seeing your father oh, defend you in your lie towards oh, somebody else. Oh, I'll tell you, that'll bring repentance. 
Oh boy, no kidding. See, but, because, but this is how I'm reading these scriptures. Yeah. Is like, here, here That's is the only way we can read them. Here's the nation of Israel mm. saying and living out of a lie about what is actually who, who God is. Who God is, who they are, and who their neighbors are. Absolutely. It's all of them. Right, and then God. This is the radical nature of God. This is the four four harmonies that you mentioned before? Absolutely, and, and what the world is, because they think the world is theirs to take and use how they will. Right, who God is, who they are, who their neighbor is, and what creation is. Absolutely, and they and they and they're just yeah. distortedly reading this. That's it. That's but, it. But but the radical nature of the fatherhood of God sends Jesus Christ in His Sonship yes. to actually take all of this on and bring about a purification in the midst of it out of love by taking it on taking on the the role of the poor becoming poor becoming poor it's it's yeah i'm trying to think of analogy i'm, I'm my mind is moving toward 80s movies and about bullies and kids who be you know it's it's everybody's favorite like teenager movies from the 80s where like my, the made fun of kid becomes the hero. Dude, what's the what's that great movie? It's about uh, it's like my buddy and he there's a poor guy and then there's this like there's this kid who's poor and super strong. Oh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I'll Coming I'll to t- America. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. Big. No. Okay. I'm just no. kidding. No, it's, don't don't even. I'm not. I'm it's just, like, those it's were like, jokes. It's like I want to see my body and me. I know that's what was like, playing in my head, know, and I didn't want to like, go there. It's like um. Okay, so okay. Second Timothy Se- first. First Timothy chapter two. Second reading. Um, remember I mentioned last same week. same as the first. <laughs> a little bit louder, but a little bit worse. Yeah. Um, it's not worse. I mentioned <laughs> last week. I think that First Timothy was written. This is the letter from Paul yep. written to Timothy who is a new pastor, basically a new bishop of the church in Ephesus. And it's instruction. It's actually funny. It follows the form of a letter that like a Roman governor would write to one of his underlings who was taking command of a certain region to demonstrate that they have the authority of the king and of the governor. Does that make sense? Yes. So like Caesar would write a letter like this on behalf of the governor to show what they're going to do, I've got, it has my backing. They are my person, so whatever you do to them, you're ultimately doing to me. So Timothy was young, we know. He probably wasn't necessarily respected by everybody. We also know him as Timmy. Timmy too. Um, and so Paul writes this letter basically saying, this is my authority that I am giving to Timothy, and here's all of the instructions that I'm giving them, giving him on how to lead you guys. Right. And... What's interesting about that, and again, so that, that's the backdrop, but trying to figure out how, okay, so, so what? How does this relate? But I'm just reading through this beginning part. Beloved, and we're, we're pretty early on in the letter. He's done his kind of hellos, his greetings, his introductions, and now he's getting into the heart of the letters. And he's saying, beloved, because he knows this is written to Timothy, but it's expected to be heard by the whole church. Right. It's like if uh, Archbishop Aquila wrote a letter to the parish, to you, that was meant to be read to the whole parish. Right. Hey, Father Peter, I heard that some people were disrespecting you. Here is my stance on you being pastor of this church. You have my authority. I've got your right. back, you know, to be read to the whole congregation kind of a thing. Right. So first of all, he says, I ask that supplications, prayers, petitions, thanksgivings be offered for everybody, for kings, for all in authority. Actually give prayers for Caesar, even though he's Caesar. And the governors and Pilate and everybody else, everybody in authority, that we may lead a quiet and a, a normal life. life. A normal life. That's where I'm most struck by. And it, it's funny because 
I'm thinking back to the first reading, and maybe I'm trying too hard to connect these, but the first reading is about these people who are so desperate. I mean, the whole history of the Northern Kingdom, the reason they start to build temples, the reason they ordain priests, the reason they uh, formulate a pseudo-liturgical calendar is because they feel like second fiddle. And I think it's Jeroboam, who in the very beginning, who is a servant of Solomon, who starts the northern kingdom. He is so terrified that his subjects are going to find allegiance with Jerusalem, because that's where the temple is, that he so desperately wants to create all these barriers and things to show, no, I'm better than the Davidic kings. I'm better than Rehoboam. I'm better than Jerusalem. Look at Bethel. It's so much cooler. Our stuff is so much better than what they're doing over there. It's this utter threatenedness of thinking, Oh, we have to prove ourselves. And you go fast forward, you know, hundreds of years into the future into Amos's time, and they have been so desperate to prove how great they are that they've used the trade in idolatry and false gods and sexual sin and trampling down of the poor and trafficking in human beings to show how awesome I am because they are so. But if you know their story, it's because they're so desperate to be respected. Because they think they're not enough. They think they're too small. They're too little. We're not good enough because we're not Jerusalem. We're not the temple. So we must prove ourselves. Really, it's a story about a nation who is poor, who instead of embracing the poverty that God has given them and let God build them into something, have desperately tried to make themselves into the God. And so what he's telling Timothy is, Timothy, you got leadership now. You're the head of a church. Do not be like the northern kingdom. Lead a normal life. Be small. Be quiet. Stand up for the truth. I mean, he will say later on, when truth needs to be stood up for, do it. Be a leader. Be bold. Sacrifice yourself if need be. But it's not about you. It's about the God who you, whom you worship. Be small. Don't seek to make this huge name and place for yourself. Just lead a normal life. Because that's what God actually wants for you. He wants peace. He wants tranquility. We talked a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, right, about peace being a kind of a normalcy. Right. Just living how God wants us to live. Right. But we all in so many realms of our life get so afraid of what the future holds we want to grasp at, right? And Amos says that's actually been the downfall of the northern Israel because they've grasped and it's led to everything bad. And so in a certain sense, again, at the risk of reading too much in, Paul is saying, Timothy, don't be that. Yeah. Pray to God. Put your authority and your trust in him. Lead a quiet and tranquil life. Pray for Caesar. Don't get everybody riled up saying, look at our enemies over there. Look at how much worse they are. Look at how much better we are than them. We are so much more awesome. No, pray for them. Right. Be humble. Be right. small. Be poor. Yes. I don't know. That's what I'm hearing, at least as far as trying to figure out what in the wisdom of the church led the church to actually put these things together. I don't know. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, I hear it too. I look at that and I and I, I think in relationship to what what's going on so far and to being able to say, no, I'm in a particular place. I'm going to be reverent to what that is yes. and do what's before you. You don't have to create something that isn't there. Right. So, you know, yes, everything's tumultuous and it's always going to be. Yes. And that it, is it, what it is. It is the world. So guess what? It's going to be a little bit complicated. And there's always going to be a Caesar who's kind of out to get you. So yeah. you know the proper response? Don't let him seize you. Pray for him. <laughs> Don't let him seize you. Well, well done there. Right? But Paul says pray for him. Pray for That's him. That's the response to feeling threatened. Right. 
which it, is which is we had a lecture the other day which was was actually saying like in a, in our current environment ross Douthat from new york doubt times it, yeah doubt it came to, <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so ross doubt from the new york times he came and one of the things he was just talking about is is like yeah, we can stir each other up into this political fervor back and forth and yeah. say, ah, the sky is falling and go Pollyanna on it. But basically, small. it's like uh, that we're in a place of, he would actually argue, political stagnation. And and in the and midst, cultural stagnation, cultural stagnation, to where, of course, the only kind of place to go is to stir up this insane political fervor of of a di- dichotomous nature, yeah. rather than just saying like, no, we're kind of poor, and we're going to try our, we're going to try, which is which it's is easier to create a, co- a common enemy. Yes, it's so much easier to get people to rally against somebody that we have decided that we hate, you whether it be a political party or a political leader or wh- whoever we choose to vilify. And again, there's lots of reasons and there's lots of evil that's happening in our culture and politically and in the world. But it's just I mean, this if we know nothing else about Jesus's ministry and Paul's ministry. Right. They're operating under the real under the under the rule of the Roman Empire, which is the most brutal and oppressive empire the world had ever seen. Right. Never do either Jesus or Paul say they're the bad guy. They are the enemy to be fought. Never. They say, no, they are the brother to be one. And the evil one is the enemy to be fought against. And guess where he is? He's not sitting on a throne in Rome. He's sitting in your hearts trying to get to you. So fight him. Right. He, yeah. But it's easier to rile people up against a common enemy. Absolutely, it's just easier. So we get to Luke. So we get to this Luke stinking parable. A rich man <laughs> had a steward who was reported him for squandering his property. Steward, prepare a full account of your stewardship. For steward, you are no longer. All right. So here's the thing. Two things. Make to friends say. with evil money, bro. Is that does it say that in this, or is that just we what we take from it? It says he says that later on, doesn't he? He says or is that in this um, parable. Uh, the person who is trustworthy in very small matters is trustworthy yeah. in great ones, and the person who is dishonest in very small matters is dishonest in great ones. If, therefore, you who are not trustworthy with dishonest wealth will trust you with true wealth, yeah. uh, who will trust you with true wealth? Um, no servant can be two masters. Okay. There you go. So here's the first thing that needs to be said about this parable. So this is a, a three things. Weird parable. That's number one. Okay. <laughs> Real weird, which I think is so probably constantly avoided by preachers trying to figure out, okay, how do I do this? Because essentially, if you take the story in a nutshell, it's the steward who is dishonest and a cheat. His boss finds out about it, catches him cheating financially or, or embezzling or whatever it is, says basically, okay, He's irreverent. I'm about to fire you, so I need the logbooks back. And before he gives the logbooks of all the boss's finances back, he goes around to all of these other people, all of these other people who are in business with the boss, and he gets them to change all the amounts of their debts. Change, so that, yeah. So, change so, their debt levels. So, so that they're like, wow, this guy was really hooked me up. Right. And actually, if you read it's like some of the amounts he's talking here, 100 measures of oil, I mean, this is the equivalent of like $40,000. So when he's like cooking the books and changing the level of people's debt to the master. We're talking about tens of the equivalent, the modern day equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars. So, I mean, he's cheating his boss out of big time. This is a guy who's like, all right, I'm going down. And if I'm going down, I'm going to do as much as I can in the end. And so when the boss finds out, he catches him and basically, basically says, 
Well done! You've totally cheated me! Remarkably so, and you've brought everybody else into the equation. The end. Happy parable. And you're like, wait a second. But the but before we go into it, because I can see your mind is cooking, you it wasn't until the fourth century. This is important. It wasn't until I think the fourth BC or AD. AD, Are we going backwards or forwards? No, the gospel. Okay. So it wasn't until sometime around the fourth century that chapter divisions were put in the gospels. Okay. Which is important because if there if you take out the chapter divisions that are in the gospels, chapter sixteen, fifteen. That means this parable falls back to back with the parable of, parable of the prodigal son. And I think, and our minds just want to separate things because chapter means you're supposed to separate it. But all of scripture is inspired by God. Chapter divisions are not always necessarily so, right? right. There's some, somebody in their best guesses tried to figure out how to make sense of organizing this stuff. Right. But if you take the chapter division out in chapter 16, what you have is Jesus's parable of the prodigal son immediately followed by the parable of the dishonest steward. And I think that one parable is actually speaking to the other. Mm-hmm. They're meant to be seen in light of one another. Mm. There, there are different sort of things going on, but I think that's the mo- This isn't just some standalone floating on its own parable. It's put in the gospel in the context of the prodigal of son. Of last week. And if you think about all of the connections each of the stories, both parables has a noble master or a father who demonstrates extraordinary grace to a wayward person under them, either a son or an employee, right? Right. A master who has extraordinary grace. Both stories contain a um, kind of, not maybe not evil, but pretty wayward son or steward who waste the master's resources, right? Yes. Common characteristic. Both have... Um, a wayward underling, so to speak, who reach a moment of truth regarding these losses. I got to do something to make this right. I got to do something to deal with this. In both cases, you have a son or a steward who throw themselves on the mercy of the father slash master, right? And in both cases, you deal with broken trust and all the problems that result from broken trust. Okay. I mean, there's so many. I think there's a lot of parables. I'm stealing yes. a lot of this from Ken Bailey, Kenneth Bailey, Word. who you know I love profoundly. And I love too. So here's what Ken Bailey says about this. Talk I me. cut you off before, though. Do you no, wanna... no, no, no. Keep going. Keep going. I want you to complete this idea because I'm going to contradict everything you say. Awesome. That's my favorite. I, let me, first of all, give myself the caveat of saying I, do, I really don't totally know what to do with this story. Right. Because it is problematic. And it does seem like this guy is being commended for his dishonesty. But I do think there is a, a nuance in the language. He's not being commended for being dishonest. He's being commended for being crafty, <laughs> which sounds like oh, you're splitting hairs, Scott. But but here's what happens. So if you take this picture from kind of the, the Middle Eastern cultural reference point, you have this guy who's essentially caught cheating and fired. And normally what you'd happen is normally in the Middle East, you know, if there's an accusation brought, there's usually lots of negotiation. He's like, well, wait a second, but it's not really my fault or I'm going to bring in these witnesses to show that I'm actually not as bad as you think I am. I mean, th- there's no negotiation on this guy's part, right? He's right. He kind of like puts his head down and doesn't make a response, which is fascinating. He doesn't defend himself, which you kind of expect anyone, you know, even a business executive to defend themselves, even if they know they're wrong, right? right. But he doesn't. He just, he still has possession of the books though. And he's like, all right, I'm fired. I'm as good as done. But I've still got the books. So but, while I got the books. But I'm too proud to beg and I'm too weak to dig. 
He's too. He says that, doesn't he? Yeah. Too proud to bag, too weak to dig. So what does he do? He goes around and he finds all the other debtors to his master. They don't know he's fired because I guarantee if they knew he was fired, they would not have anything to do with him. But they don't know that. So he goes as though he is a representative of the master. And he's like, all right, how much do you owe? And they're like, okay, this much. And he's like, all right, cut it by amazing amounts. Again, tens of thousands of dollars. And then he gets them to sign the books. He gets their writing, which what does it do? It makes them culpable to the embezzlement. So it's not just him trying to win friends. It's saying, if I'm going down, I'm going to take everybody with me. And I'm going to get there by their authority, their own signatures. So nobody can go and accuse me before the master because if they accuse me, they're automatically going to accuse themselves because I got their names and their handwriting in this book. So he's bringing everyone else along in his embezzlement, right? Now, what happens if you're talking about the amount of money that I think we're really talking about, tens of thousands of dollars, then the whole town has just experienced a windfall of money and savings and a release of debt, which means what are they probably going to do? They're going to be like, yeah, they're going to celebrate, right? They're going to party. They're going to be so happy that their debt is freed and they're relieved. Now, once the master finds out what has happened and sees all of the people under him and all of his town rejoice, what are they thankful for? What are they partying and celebrating? The graciousness of the master. Right. The master has released us from our debt. He's been so generous. Now, the master has two options. He can either go in and say, nope, lies, I'm taking the money back, this was not true, this was under false pretenses, your your debt is not actually forgiven, which is going to make everybody be like, oh, you stink, you're the worst master ever, like, we thought you were, you know. Or, if you're the master, you're like, okay, well, I could just take the loss and gain all of the respect and love of everybody in the town, and I could be the benevolent person who everyone loves and what kenneth bailey says about this story is that really it says much less about the dishonest steward who's kind of a jerk and it says much more about how the dishonest steward views the master and the fact that everything he's doing is showing that the dishonest steward suggests that i am putting my total and complete trust in the graciousness and total generosity of the master Because I know that when he sees this, he's not going to take the money back. He's not going to go and ruin everyone's celebration and understanding of what's happened. He's going to suck it up and take the hit and become a little bit more poor on behalf of his people. So he feels the freedom to do all of this dishonest stuff because he knows the reckless, utter graciousness and mercy of his master. Yeah, it's like which is interesting. It's it's like uh, I imagine this in relationship to perfect and imperfect contrition. Okay, so this perfect, is pretty imperfect contrition. Right, on this right, guy's right, part. right, right. It's, yeah, yeah. it's it's like mercy is bestowed because of fear of hell. Yes, like yes, absolutely. So so what happens? In imperfect contrition says I'm I I am too proud. <laughs> I'm too proud to beg, and I'm too, <laughs> too weak, weak to, to dig. dig. And so I'm going to I'm going to like actually bestow mercy. This is the craziest part is that is that inadvertently the mercy that is administered by the dishonest steward mm-hmm. is, is that like like he is he's being so profoundly merciful. I can't handle he's like it. Robin Hood. 
Right. He's a Robin Hood figure. That, yeah. that, that's the way that he's stealing from the rich, giving to the poor. Right. But the, and but, everyone's like, oh, dishonest steward, we love you. But then he's like, he's like, look at this. He's like, you're trying to like actually g- get yourself out of hot water yeah. by just going into profound mercy, which totally. brings me back to Amos. But it's not his own mercy. It's somebody else's mercy. It's somebody else's <laughs> mercy. Exactly. And and then like he inadvertently <sighs> stumbled upon the father's mercy, the, 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 this master's mercy. I don't think he did. I think his whole operating principle is his father's mercy. I think he does everything he does with the total reckless assumption that the father is going, uh, the master is going to be generous. Yeah. And, and so it's like, and, and he does it in a deplorable way. He's taking advantage of the father's mer- of the, of the master's mercy. Right. You make no doubt. And Jesus right. even said, this is a son of this age. He doesn't, Jesus is not presenting this guy as favorable. He's a child of this age of the world of deplorable morality. Which, Jesus which is, does not like this guy. No, which is super important because yes. the ends by which he's doing it is he's just trying to prepare a place for himself. Exactly right. But the father is actually preparing a place for everyone and saying, let me show you who I really am. The father is even preparing a place for him. Right. The master, father, slash whatever. Yeah, but that's how we say it. But that's the, the shockingness of the story is that there's even room in the Father's mercy for this deplorable guy. Right. Uh, yeah, and, and so you look and you see Amos, and he's saying, you know, hold on, how, what was the summary The summary phrase that we used earlier? Is seek like the, me and live. Seek me and live. Or seek God and live. Yeah. Right, but, but that you can stumble into it. You can stumble into it. Yes, that's true. Right, that's right, it. right. Like, like here, he, this guy's trying to save his own neck, and he's a child of the age. But somehow, he's actually discovered a secret of of the father's goodness out of his own selfish means. Well, and that's what he's done. Is that whatever happens to this guy, whatever either right. punishment befalls him or consequence comes to him, what he has ultimately done is exposed the the master's goodness. Yes, exactly. So he has become a sign of evangelization in a certain sense. Again, whatever happens to him, because he's not by default going to be like welcome. You know, I mean, he still is what he is, but he is exposed even through his sinfulness. He has exposed the father's love. Yes. Which means that no matter what happens in our crooked, sinful, fallen world, even the darkness can expose the Father's love. Right. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's like, even if that guy, if that guy can expose the Father's love, then what about you? And right. that's how Jesus uses this as a juxtaposition. He's a son of this age. He's a son of the world. And even he was able, and this is my translation, interpretation that I'm putting in, even he is able to expose the Father's goodness. So how much more? Should you be able to do it? Which is the Father's glory. His goodness yes. is his glory. And exactly. So we, we look back at Amos and Bethel, yes. and here they are, and they totally have screwed up, and they're doing this. But then yeah. inadvertently, we actually have a setup for us being able to understand how right. God can actually transform the worst yes. experiences of human life, the yes. worst sins of human life, and yes. actually transform it in his glory. He is yes. Mr. Fusion from Back to the Future. He can take all the trash in the world and turn it into this most profound experience. You so casually brought in Mr. Fusion. That's remarkable. Wow. But that's the thing is, it's like, I mean, I can't tell you pastorally how profoundly I 
see this in everybody's life, mm. that the repented sin mm. turns into the glory of God, right. that if we are willing to turn from, from, from being connected and attached to these sinful things in our life, that literally those things are, just ask any AA meeting in the world. Just yeah. Go, yeah. go and ask those who have actually found their life, um, those who have repented and found healing even from the most terrible of sins. The darkest places. Right. It's like my dad, when I was a kid, he, uh, I mean, my dad tells me a story. He was in New York on a, on a business trip in, in some hotel, and he saw a graffiti, and it was an icon of Jesus, and underneath it, it just said, God loves prostitutes. And it's like, Whoa. it's like this thing of, of saying like, yes, even these things wow. that, that seem so vicious can be entirely transformed in the power even of Jesus Christ. Even these things Christ. that are so vicious right, right, can be transformed. Right, no, I'm right, not trying right. to split hairs, but I mean, that's No, important. that's exactly, that's, that's, that's technical and right. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> so Bethel, Bethel. <laughs> <laughs> Bethel, world, dishonest steward. Repent. Too, too proud to beg, Let, too weak to dig, man. That is Scott Powell right there. Just <laughs> hey, for I've dug like you wouldn't believe. No, you actually, you, dude, I dig you, I'm still man. still too proud. All <laughs> right, you guys. We will be back next week digging Father Peter. That is unless the world ends. And then if that's the case, we're going to see you in heaven. So I hope so. So, yeah, so I really hope that uh, the world doesn't end and that we get to talk to you more about Scripture because I like it. I mean, we're just going to be doing the same thing in heaven. We're going to be like, look at that cool story and how awesome it was. But it'll be way better. It'll be way better because we will see clearly and not dimly as in a mirror. And we won't have time restraints. Seriously. It'll be hours and hours of podcasts, eons of podcasts. And it'll actually all be done within the context of the liturgy anyway. Yeah. That's true. Good point. All right, you guys. You gotta go. We gotta go. We'll see you next week. Love ya. Go, go, gadget. Podcast. Podcast. (laughs) Mass time. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Bye. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash AICT. And you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.